please open the word of God once again to Mark, Mark chapter 15. We've reached the very end of the chapter. And last week we examined what is really the climax of Mark's gospel. It's really what Mark has been driving us to from the very beginning. Where the identity of Jesus is suddenly and very ironically recognized and declared by a Roman centurion. And you could say that, in a way then, everything that follows Mark fifteen thirty nine is sort of a, a prologue to the gospel. Mark has clearly demonstrated who Jesus is now, what he came to do, and the fact that he has fulfilled his mission on earth. And because of this, be, between the shadow of the cross and the empty tomb, which we're going to examine next week, this text before us is sort of forgotten by many. It, it is easily overlooked. But it is a text, I hope we will see, that is both doctrinally and practically significant for us. And I trust we will see that is true as we examine it. So let's stand once again for the reading of the Word of God. And our text is Mark chapter 15, verses 40 through 47. There we read, There was also some woman looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, we're looking on to see where he was laid. That's the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this truth we are about to receive from your word. And we ask you then for the help of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would give us ears to hear. We ask that you would give us humble hearts to receive your truth and to respond as we ought Purify us, Lord, from wavering faith, and we ask that you would build our faith to believe you even in the darkest of times, even when it's not easy to trust you. And we ask that you would give holy unction to your servant, that as I speak, Lord, you would enable me, give your people the ability to focus. This we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Fear of the dark is a very common phobia. And there are many different reasons for that, many different causes that would be related to people's fear of the dark. The most fundamental cause for fear of the dark is due to the fact that darkness deprives us of our ability to see. And we can't, when the lights go out, see what's happening around us. And so our minds begin to play tricks on us and we begin to imagine things that aren't really there. 
We begin to distort reality, as it were. This is why children with great imaginations are the most prone to fear of the dark. And that's sort of the situation before us in the Gospel of Mark now. The light has gone out. And Jesus' disciples, all of them, are left in the dark, certainly watching the suffering and the humiliation and the death of their beloved Savior would have brought about tremendous fear, perhaps emotional shock for many. As they are trying to grapple with what has just happened, and maybe there's a little bit of denial, and yet we cannot blame them for this. This has to be the most depressing moment in all of Mark's gospel. In fact, I believe that this is the darkest corner in all of the gospel record. The day that Jesus died and was buried. Let us remember that for many of Jesus' disciples, Jesus was their hope. Jesus was their security. Jesus was their life. Many had given everything to follow this man, and now he was gone. Suddenly, so unexpectedly for many. And so what do you do when it seems that hope has died? What do you do when the light goes out and you're left in the darkness? What do you do when the one who gives you answers and direction in life is suddenly not there anymore and falls silent and you're left in the darkness, in the silence. You might expect this was a good time to stop following Jesus if ever there was a time as a follower of Jesus to turn away from him, to stop following him altogether. It was the fact that he's no longer alive. He's no longer around. And so as we're, we're left to wonder, Jesus is dead, how will Jesus' disciples respond? The question left hanging after Jesus' death is, how will they respond? To Jesus' death. Will their faith even last the night? And Mark turns our attention to Jesus' disciples then, and we examine, as we examine Jesus' death and burial, we see some signs of life. I think we could say signs of life in the darkness, these glimpses of enduring devotion to Christ that endure through this difficult night. And that's what we're intending to emphasize from this text to follow Jesus. We will need devotion that endures through the night. We will need devotion to Christ that endures through the darkness. And our text unfolds three scenes immediately following Jesus' death. These scenes not only confirm Jesus' death, but they display for us three glimpses, we might say, of enduring devotion. The first scene immediately following Jesus' death, we witness here loyalty. Loyalty to remain with Jesus to the very end. Verse 40 says, there were also some women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph and Salome. When he, that is Jesus, was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Verses 40 and 41 are showing us women who remained loyal to Jesus to the end. And, and how is that? How do we see their loyalty to Jesus in these verses? Well, Mark has told us in verse 41 that in the past, when Jesus was in Galilee, these same women used to follow him everywhere he went. They used to minister to him. Remember that Jesus was without a home. Ever since his baptism for the past three years now in his life on earth, 
He was entirely devoted to the work of the ministry. Jesus had not a place where to lay his own head. And he was entirely dependent upon the benevolence of his people, of his followers, his friends, including these dear women. And there was a time when these women had the opportunity to follow Jesus, to serve him in in any way possible. They did so gratefully. They did so joyfully. But now, in the present time, all they can do is look on and helplessly watch. This is all they can do. Literally, all they can do is be here for Jesus. Now, some commentators have emphasized the fact that these women were standing from afar and they, they were standing at a distance to Jesus' cross out of fear. As if to say, they dared not come any closer to him. I think that we should realize there's nothing negative about their distance to Christ. There's nothing negative here about the fact that these women are standing from a distance, that they dared not come any closer. We should expect these women to be standing from a distance. For one thing, uh, the one they loved the most was now mutilated on a cross. This was very difficult for them to even be here, to see Jesus mutilated and nailed to this wood. Jesus is also surrounded by many mockers. There's nothing these women can do about that. By staying at a distance, I believe they're clearing themselves from the mocking that is going on. And we also know that they weren't standing too far because Jesus was able, apparently, to call out to Mary, his mother, and to John and to address them from the cross We also see that they're powerless to help Jesus. There was nothing they could really do for him unless we are to assume that these are the women that offer Jesus myrrh mixed with wine as a sort of painkiller. Perhaps that is these women that are giving that as an act of of mercy to Jesus. That may be the case. So I don't believe that these women are looking on from a distance in a negative way. I think this should be understood positively. I think everything in the context should lend us to believe that. Few things are as difficult as watching someone die when you are powerless to help them. Isn't that so true? I remember being called to the bedside of someone who was in the final stages of terminal cancer and the cancer had literally left her body a skeleton. And I remember feeling so helpless. I stood there and I I took her hand and I prayed with her and that was all I could do. And few things are as, as depressing as watching someone die and there's nothing you can do about it. That's where these women are. And especially the fact that they dearly love this one. They are watching die. This must have been agonizing. They are not here again because they want to be here. They don't want to see this, but they know they must be here for Jesus. They want to remain loyal to Jesus to the very end. They want him to know that they are with him for the final moments of his life because they loved him. And that leads us to ask why. Why did these women show such loyalty to Jesus? Well, simply put, they knew him. And they knew that this Jesus hanging on the cross was one who was loyal to them. In Jesus' time, women, we should remember, were marginalized members of society. And... At the cross, these women would epitomize those who were powerless to help Jesus. But that had never made a difference to Jesus, did it? Anywhere we go in the life of Jesus, Jesus is always 
treating women with respect. He's always ministering to women as equals. In fact, Luke particularly brings that out in his gospel. It's one of his great emphasis. It is Jesus' ministry to women. And Jesus never conditioned his help for people on whether they were able to help him, on what their societal status is. Just see through the Gospels and you see that it made no difference to Jesus whether his followers were male or female, whether they were bond or free, whether they were of the societal status of Nicodemus, one who was in the Sanhedrin, or whether it was one like Matthew, a tax collector, or a prostitute. Jesus wasn't helping people or conditioning his help to people upon what those people could do for him because Jesus was gracious. He's gracious. And these women knew that. And we don't have time to investigate each of the women named here. There's an interesting uh, study on that. But uh, for sake of time, the indebtedness of these women, which they felt to Jesus, is most keenly felt, most keenly uh, evident in the mention of this one, Mary Magdalene. And unfortunately, twisted minds have come up with this this fictional, theoretical conspiracy that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had some kind of romance. Uh, It doesn't help that our culture, by the way, is historically illiterate. So when they come across something like the, the fiction of Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code, people can't tell the difference. Uh, But if you understand, there's not a shred of evidence for this conspiracy and it completely disregards all the evidence we do have in history, you understand that Dan Brown's novel is rightly classified as fiction. It's nothing more than that. And it's also blasphemous, we could say, too. But another popular misconception about Mary Magdalene is that she was formerly a prostitute. You know, you'll, you'll hear that. You'll, you'll see that depicted. And yet, Scripture nowhere indicates that that was the case, that she was a prostitute. What the Bible does tell us about this woman is that she was formerly demon-possessed. Luke chapter 8, verse 2 says that she was possessed with seven devils and Jesus healed her. Now that is a great reason for this woman to feel indebted to Jesus. And she is among the vast company of women here who have followed Jesus from Galilee here now to Jerusalem, even to his cross and wants to remain with him because she knows what Jesus did for her and she is indebted to him. It shouldn't surprise us these women love Jesus so much. Most of Jesus' disciples were nowhere to be found at this point. Most had forsaken him. But these women remain with Jesus to the very end because apparently their loyalty endures the night. They had this sort of devotion. So how can we, like these women, remain loyal to Jesus through the night, through the darkest times? Well, only by God's grace. But by God's grace, we can remain faithful to Christ by remembering that he is faithful to us. We have the entire word of God in our hands. We have God's promises to us more than these women even had. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus promised even to you, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. Jesus promised you that. We're talking about the God who told his people in Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be consumed, nor will the flame burn you. I am the Lord your God. You are precious in my sight. God is faithful to his people. Christ will never forsake his own. And you may feel that there's little you can do for Christ. There's little you can do for God. But when we look at these women, they sort of remind us. There's something to be said for just 
being there. Just being present. Just being there. Your presence is a gift. You know, you could be a lot of other places this Sunday morning, but you're here, and I hope you're here for Jesus, but you're here because your presence is a gift to the Lord. Your presence says something. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in your midst. And Jesus is always present with us. We ought to be there for him. So in this first scene, immediately following Jesus' death, we catch this glimpse of loyalty. Loyalty to remain with Jesus to the very end in this dark time. But there's a second scene following Jesus' death, Mark gives us. And in the second scene, we catch a glimpse of courage. Courage to risk all for Jesus' sake. Look at verse 42. Kind of gives us the setting here. Now, when evening had already come, what a dark time this is, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came. Now, if there was any doubt as to which day Jesus had died on, because there is some dispute within Christian circles, I think Mark is plain enough to tell us here it was Friday. He says it was on the preparation day. That is the day before Sabbath. This is Friday, clearly. And um, on this Friday, we're told that these are the, the moments before sunset. And at this time, Mark shows us a man who is willing to risk all to follow Jesus. For Jesus' sake, who was this man? Well, when evening was approaching, verse 43, he says, Joseph of Arimathea came. A prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. This man, Joseph of Arimathea, was a member of the Sanhedrin. And not just a member of the Sanhedrin, but a prominent one at that. He had some clout with the Sanhedrin. Perhaps it's because he was older and had been a long-standing member. But this is the same Supreme Court of Israel that has just condemned Jesus to death. They're the one who brought Jesus to the Romans in the first place. And yet, Luke 23, 51 would say that Joseph himself, he had not consented to their plan and their action. He was a righteous man. Of course, Mark says Joseph himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. He wants you to know Joseph was a true Israelite. Joseph was a true Israelite waiting for God's kingdom. He had recognized God's Messiah and Jesus Christ. And John would tell us that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. He actually followed Jesus. Though, he adds, he was a secret one for fear of the Jews. Joseph is a conflicted man. When we put all the Gospels together, we get quite an interesting picture here, a colorful picture of a man that we can relate to, even in our difficult time, where there's a lot of hostility to coming out and being public about faith in Jesus. And he's conflicted because as much as he fears God and as much as he believes Jesus and wants to follow Christ, yet he fears the Jews. And he fears what they will think or do if he freely speaks his mind. But verse 43 continues. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now why did Joseph consider it necessary to ask for Jesus' body? Crucifixion victims were typically left on crosses for days until they were decomposed. And this was the Romans' uh, theatrical warning that basically said to anyone, have nothing to do with this man, and uh, it was to strike fear into the hearts of passerbys. So that was often the case of crucifixion victims. But commonly, victims were also thrown into the trash heap. They were just thrown into a garbage heap where they were either burned in fire or they were eaten by dogs. And so, 
as one condemned to crucifixion, it should be clear to us, Jesus was not entitled to a respectable burial. And therefore, to honor Jesus and save his corpse disgrace, Joseph quickly intervenes and we read, he gathers up courage. He gathers up courage. That's the Greek word, taumao, which means to dare. He dares to risk. Ever been there? Ever had to do something for God where you were very uncertain about how the outcome was going to be? That's Joseph here. He doesn't know what's going to happen when he takes this step. And we should ask, how is that then? What is so courageous about Joseph's actions? Well, this required courage because of what the Romans might do to Joseph. The the Romans might grant the body of a crucified victim to family members, but Joseph's no family member. He's no relative of Jesus. Joseph is a member of Israel's elite class, a member of the Sanhedrin. And for him to make a formal request for the body of this crucified king, that was dangerous. The Romans were saying by putting Jesus on the cross and by nailing against him the charge, this is the king of the Jews. They were saying to all Jews, have nothing to do with this man. He is an insurrectionist. And your loyalty to him is disloyalty to Caesar. For Joseph to even come forward as a prominent member of Jewish society and to seek to honor Jesus, to even lay any claim to his body, was certainly to make him suspect in the minds of these Romans. Remember, he lived in, a, in the Roman Empire where security depended on perceived loyalty to the emperor. So Joseph was running a risk with the Roman government, but also this would have required courage because of what the Jews might do. And I think this is more the thrust of what our text is bringing out. By seeking to honor Jesus' memory with a proper burial, Joseph was certainly showing his true colors to his colleagues. Just imagine being in his sandals. You're part of this most elite organization. You've seen what they have power to do. They are able to come together and to orchestrate the death of an innocent man that many people loved. And they're able to, just in a matter of hours, have him humiliated and killed in the most terrible of ways. And now you're going to come forward and identify with this man and and, and show your loyalty to him. Why did the Sanhedrin want to kill Jesus in the first place? To extinguish his following. And now you're going to come out and say, oh yeah, I'm following Jesus. That's taking a risk. This is dangerous, and no one better than Joseph understood he was crossing the Rubicon. This was a point of no return. There would be no going back. This would take courage. And so how did he suddenly gain this courage? He's been afraid to this whole point. What causes the sudden change? Since Jesus' courage immediately occasions Joseph's courage, I think we can say Joseph was directly and deeply moved by what he saw in Jesus. He's just watched Jesus endure this humiliation and these agonies of the cross. And we know that Joseph regarded Jesus as his Lord and Master. He's a disciple. That's what a disciple is. He believes Jesus to be the Messiah. And after watching Jesus endure this all, he fixes his eyes on Jesus and he dares to step forward for Jesus' sake. You know, later in the first century, there would be many Jews in Joseph's same case. They were afraid at a time to speak Jesus' name. They were being pressured to keep quiet about Jesus, to forsake him, to return to the fold of Judaism. 
And to these, Hebrews 12, 2 would say, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Verse 3 goes on to tell Christians facing this pressure to forsake Christ, consider him. Consider Jesus who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The Bible teaches you must look at Jesus. You must take courage from Jesus and what he suffered and endured for you. That's what Joseph is doing. How ironic this is. Jesus' enemies are fully intending by killing Jesus to kill his following. They want to kill Christianity. Well, what's ironic about this is by dealing this blow to Jesus, they're in effect bringing about God's plan. Jesus is bringing salvation to all through this plan and unbeknownst to them, the blow they would deal to Jesus would inspire courage in millions. It's still happening to this day. But the courage that Jesus' suffering would inspire begins here with Joseph of Arimathea. He's moved by Jesus' courage, and he steps forward. Now, somebody may say, but pastor, I want to feel courageous, but I can't stop feeling afraid. What should I do? Well, I think we can understand that no Christian throughout history that's ever been courageous for Jesus Christ was courageous because they simply didn't feel fear. They lacked fear. They weren't courageous because they lacked fear, but they were courageous because by God's grace, they overcame fear. They were human. Someone has said, courage is doing what you're afraid to do. There can be no courage unless you're scared. Joseph feared the Romans. Joseph feared the Jews. Joseph was a man filled with fear, but he feared God more than these. He feared to lose everything, yet he dared to act because he was willing to risk and lose all for Jesus' sake. So you see, the problem this morning isn't what you fear. It isn't the fact that you are afraid. It's what you fear most. That's your problem. Or we could say, the problem isn't what you fear this morning. The problem is what you love most. That's the issue. What do you fear most, Christian? Who do you love most? That will move you. Fear has the power to cripple us. Fear has the power to mobilize Christians. Fear has paralyzed Christians all across this country. It has closed churches. It has shut people up. It is... It is threatening to put out the light where Jesus said, you are the light of the world and fear is threatening to put out that light. But the Bible says, perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4, 18. 2 Timothy 1, 7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. So it's okay to feel afraid. It's okay to feel that way. That's natural to feel that way. It's inevitable. So long as you trust God's spirit of love and power to enable you. Enable me how? To rise, to move, to do what God is calling you to do for Jesus' sake. Notice how Pilate responds to Joseph's request, verse 44. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. Mark tells us Jesus was on the cross for about six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And typically... Victims on a cross would survive at least twice that long, though many would survive on a cross for days. So Pilate is surprised to hear Jesus is already dead. He calls for the executioner, the centurion. 
Verse 45 says, And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Let's remember the centurion was a career soldier. He knew death when he saw it. He'd seen and handled plenty of corpses to know Jesus was dead. The only people who will deny that Jesus truly died on the cross are those who want to purport this theory that Jesus was taken off the cross alive, he merely appeared dead, and then was resuscitated in the tomb, and that gave rise to this whole theory about Jesus' resurrection. Of course, this is an effort by man one among many, to deny the resurrection of our Lord. But there's no evidence of anyone ever having survived a Roman crucifixion. And everything that we have, all the evidence, leads us to believe Jesus was in fact dead. We've seen the eyewitness of those standing about the cross. We've seen the now the testimony of the executioner himself. They handled death. They knew uh, all of the symptoms of death. They knew what they were looking for. And we will see in our next scene, Jesus' death is further confirmed by the fact that he is buried. So Pilate gives the body to Joseph. He granted the body to Joseph. And the Greek word there is toma. It's not the typical word soma for body. The word here, toma, is a lifeless corpse. He's telling you, Jesus was dead. Jesus was dead. And in the first scene, then, we saw the loyalty to remain with Jesus to the end. In the second scene, we've seen courage, the courage of Joseph, to risk all for Jesus' sake. But in this third scene, we catch another glimpse of this enduring devotion through the night, and that is sacrifice. Sacrifice to render due honor to Jesus. Look at verse 46. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down and wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Verses 46 and 47 shows Joseph renders honor to Jesus. How did he do that? How, do you, how does he honor, uh, render honor to Jesus? Well, first of all, he takes Jesus' body down from the cross. Do we realize how gruesome of a task this was? Jesus' body is completely mutilated. I mean, and, and who is Joseph? He's not a mortician. This guy is a member of Israel's most elite caste. He's a teacher of teachers. But here, he rolls up his sleeves and he bloodies his hands and clothes and he does this most dirty service for the sake of our Lord, washing his body, removing the nails from his hands and feet. Last week, we saw the most unlikely Gentile candidate coming forward, confessing Jesus. I think we could say this is the least likely Jewish candidate coming forward and and doing something for Jesus paying Jesus his respects. We're told he purchased a linen cloth and wrapped Jesus in it. The word for linen cloth here is sidon. It indicates a expensive cloth. And uh, we probably don't care any for what we're going to be buried in. But for Joseph, this was the last and most meaningful thing he could do for Jesus in his mind. And he wants Jesus to be buried in the most proper of ways. So he wraps Jesus in this expensive cloth and we're told Joseph next laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Matthew tells us it was his own new tomb. Joseph is laying Jesus in his own tomb, giving Jesus his own tomb. Joseph was probably up there in years, probably thinking a little bit more about where he was going to be buried. But wherever he's going to be buried, he wants to make room for his king. 
And so this is an act of sacrifice. This tomb was hewn out in the rock. And the fact that this tomb had a large round stone indicated by the fact that it's rolled, it is rolled to seal the entrance of the tomb, suggests to us that it was further unique. This was something to have a round stone, believe it or not, was rare. It was only true of very expensive tombs. Only the rich had this. Most everybody else had a square stone. And some believe that this tomb where Jesus was buried is at the location where is now built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. If you go over to Palestine today, you can see that and they'll show you where they believe Jesus was buried. That's the long-standing traditional site. Other since the mid-19th century will favor what is famously referred to as the garden tomb. And uh, here's the, the fact of the matter. We don't exactly know where the location is. I get interested in these details. I love researching these things. But you know what? Uh, Rather than dividing over issues like that, let's just all come back to the fact that we can agree this happened. Jesus died. He was buried. And it happened in this very place, this very tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. That's what matters. Joseph makes room for Jesus. He gives him his own tomb. But Joseph... More than even giving Jesus the burial of a king, Joseph is ultimately giving Jesus more than just his tomb. He's ultimately giving Jesus more than just this burial of a king. He knew that by taking this step to publicly honor Jesus as king of the Jews, he's turning his back on the religious establishment. He is burning his bridges. He's stepping into the crosshairs of Jesus' enemies. He's forfeiting his share of power and prestige with uh, the Sanhedrin. And by the way, Joseph wasn't acting alone. John 19.39 mentions that Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, John chapter 3, he was also here. He also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. Nicodemus will join Joseph, and he's bringing about 100 pounds of burial spices to offset the smell of decomposition. These men want to show their honor to Jesus, and they're willing to pay whatever the cost. They're willing to sacrifice for Christ because they are truly devoted to him. So why? Why were they so devoted to him? Why did they believe it necessary to give this honor to Christ? Well, they wanted to give back to the one who had given everything for them. Let's just consider here. Joseph and Nicodemus. Joe and Nick, right? They are stepping forward for Jesus' sake and they're both prominent members of the Sanhedrin. Only days before, they're fearful to even speak Jesus' name and suddenly, after Jesus is dead, they come forward. What on earth is happening here where there's only one rational explanation for the timing of their sacrifice? And it's the fact that they understood, apparently they understood that Jesus' sacrifice was giving everything for them. They said, if Jesus can sacrifice everything for us, we can sacrifice everything for him. We can give Jesus our riches. We can give up our uh, career in the Sanhedrin. We can, if need be, lay down our lives for him. Remember that Nicodemus, who was, he came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3, was told by Jesus as he's trying to understand uh, The gospel, he's trying to understand salvation. Jesus explains to Nicodemus that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, the son, will not perish but have everlasting life. 
And Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through the Son might be saved. And I fully believe that Joseph and Nicodemus, at least at this time, believed that. They understood that. And they understood that if God could do such an amazing gift for them, if he could be giving them this incredible gift of his son, then really they're just giving back to God. And the application here should be obvious. You can't outgive God. That's a great reason for our sacrifice. So I think that's why we see Joseph is, and Nicodemus are motivated to sacrifice for Christ. But let's not miss the fact that God Kind of zooming out now, God is himself providentially fulfilling scripture in, in the sacrifice. Isaiah 53.9 would say of the Messiah, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. As a crucifixion victim, Jesus' grave was assigned with the wicked. He would have been uh, thrown into a trash heap. That's where the the two criminals crucified alongside him surely went. Jesus' grave was assigned with the wicked and yet somehow Jesus would be, the Messiah would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Well, this is just another prophecy that Jesus Christ remarkably fulfills. And there is no one else in history that even comes close to the amount of prophecies that Jesus fulfills. Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament and that, of course, is a great reason to recognize him as your Messiah, as the King, as the Son of God, as everything he claimed to be. Verse 47 adds, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. This minor detail that concludes the chapter is actually very significant because it's indicating to us as the readers that these women who were witnesses at the cross, they were witnesses of Jesus' death. These same women are going to be the ones who are the very first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. They knew he died. They were very clear about the fact he had rose again. And we'll examine this fact more next week as we examine the Lord's resurrection. So this text, we said, has both doctrinal and practical significance for us. From the very beginning of church history, we see the church understood this was significant. All four Gospels record the burial of Jesus with striking detail. That should indicate this was really important to them, that we know this. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 records for us one of the earliest Christian creeds that we have preserved for us. It's preserved in Scripture. And it says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. Okay? He was buried. This is part of basic Christian creeds. Some of you may be familiar with the Apostles' Creed, which dates back to as early as the beginning of the second century. And what do we hear there? Early as the Apostles' Creed, Christians were confessing Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. What was it about Jesus' burial that was so doctrinally significant? Well, it's this. First of all, Jesus' burial proves the fact he was truly dead. Jesus truly died. His burial makes that very plain. And the fact that Jesus truly died indicates that he truly rose. Jesus' burial proves that what happens three days later isn't resuscitation, it's resurrection. 
There's a world of a difference. Also, Jesus' burial fulfilled scripture, including his own prediction in Matthew 12, 40. Jesus said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus fulfilled that. His burial was necessary to fulfill God's plan predicted in scripture. And for us who have believed on Christ, Jesus' burial also has a special personal significance. Scripture teaches that when Christ died, when Christ was on the cross, when he was nailed there, if you believed on him, you were nailed there too. Your sins were nailed to the cross with Jesus. When Christ was buried, Scripture teaches, if you've believed in him and you received the Savior, you were buried with him too. John Bunyan brings this out most eloquently in Pilgrim's Progress. When at the cross in his allegory, Christian, representing everyone who's exercised faith in Jesus Christ, Christian stands at the foot of the cross and it is there that his burden of sin falls off his back, rolls down the hill of Calvary into the open tomb and is there forever buried. That is glorious truth. Bunyan was saying, that those who have believed in Jesus Christ, their sin is removed and that guilt is forever buried. And it's God who buries it, which means we can never find it, though we look for it in a million years. And this is why when we baptize a new believer, by the way, we immerse him or her into the water. We are demonstrating what Paul says in Romans 6, 4, that we are buried with him through baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So there's glorious doctrinal truth to be found in Jesus' burial. But this text, as we've been more so examining this morning, captures the response of some of Jesus' disciples. And we see that. Mark is really focusing on, not on Jesus' corpse, but he's directing our attention to how Jesus' disciples are reacting at this time. And of course, we know some of Jesus' disciples, they, they proved unfaithful. They weren't even at the cross. Many proved cowardly. They had forsaken him long ago, in, even in the garden at his arrest. Others proved selfish to the extent that they would forever leave off following Christ. They would only pursue their own selfish interests from this point on. But there's somewhat of a silver lining in what Mark's shown us here, that even in the darkest moments of the gospel, I think this is the most depressing place in the entire record of scriptures. And yet, at this time, we catch a few glimpses of precious, enduring devotion. And this devotion ought to challenge us. It ought to challenge us that if we're going to be true to Jesus, we need this kind of devotion. We need devotion to Christ that endures through the darkness, that lasts the night. Mark chapter 15 ends without any resolution, at least not the resolution that you and I are anticipating because we know the end of the story, don't we? But these who we've left off at at this portion of the text, many of them are are hanging on to God. It's sort of like Psalm 88. It reminds me of Psalm 88 where the psalmist is crying to God, will your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Your faithfulness and destruction, will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? You know, Psalm 88 ends without any positive resolution. The psalmist ends crying out to God in the darkness. 
Why is there even anything in the scriptures like that? Why would God give us these dark corners of his word? Well, maybe there's somebody here or you know somebody and you're going through that sort of a dark time and it's the night and it's like the light is out and and we can't see the deliverance, can we? Yes, the Lord, the Spirit of God wants us to have devotion to Christ even when we can't see the deliverance. We all want to jump to three days later, don't we? We just want to resolve the tension. But there are times when God's going to leave you in the dark. The light goes out. And you don't hear the answers. And you need to cling to the God who is unchanging. The God who has left you with his word, his promises. As we await next Sunday's resurrection text, ask God to instill in you this sort of devotion. The the devotion that remains. It endures. It survives the night. And if you're here and you've never, by faith, devoted your life to Jesus Christ, well, that's, that's where salvation begins. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you've You've never done that. You've never made that decision. Please approach me. I'd love to speak with you about how this salvation in Christ can be yours. Let's pray.